Hello, everybody. Roll up, roll up, move to the center, move to the front of the hall. <laughs> Don't lurk at the back. Um, <laughs> this is Ian Williams with the Foreign Press Association in New York, and it gives me a great deal of pleasure to uh, welcome my old colleague, uh, Richard Lapper, who is also at Liverpool University. I was thrown out, he wasn't, so you can take that <laughs> as a degree of whichever quality you want. And uh, he has been uh, covering Brazil and Latin America for Financial Times for many years. Uh, and uh, I actually did a seminar for Financial Times on rum, including Brazil uh, a few years ago, which was very memorable, very memorable. <laughs> um, and, uh, but Richard has written his book, which you have seen, uh, Beef, Bolsonaro, whatever, and it basically sums it all up. Uh, the deforestation, according to a lot of people, is because rainforests are being burned and bulldozed to make way for soybean production for China and the US and beef production for the markets. And the governments um, basically have not done anything about it very much. Uh, they've tacitly encouraged the ranchers to do it because they're in the pockets of the ranchers. It's a familiar story. And this morning we had uh, Jaya Bolsonaro uh, speaking in the traditional Brazilian first slot at the UN General Assembly in which he depicted this paradise on earth and the Amazon, the, a place there were, where the rainforests were untouched, where the native plants flourished, where the locals were happy, where workers were happy, where investment was booming and COVID was under control. Um, I did strain now and again to see at which points his vision touched reality in any way at all, but uh, it's sort of fitting that we have Richard here to tell us because on one hand, Bolsonaro is one of the, um, how should we say, he is the whole new breed of elected authoritarians, where people are elected officially, democratically, and then you're always apprehensive about whether they will give up power at the end of it. And in the meantime, as we know uh, from the United States, from, uh, from Britain and many other places, uh, Hungary, the first thing they do is to try to consolidate ways that they can win democratically, uh, by uh, rig rigging the ballot, loading the dice against the opponents, and so on. So Richard will now tell us all about this, uh, the beef and the rainforests and the balsa, and um, he might talk about cachaça, but I doubt it. Richard, over to you. Yeah. Well, um, Ian, I, 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 finished my, I finished my degree at Liverpool University, but I never fin finished my my postgraduate uh, efforts. So, you know, I am in, I am in Liverpool University's bad books, having wasted, you know, three years of grant money there. But um, I would think, but anyway, um, listen, I mean, it's a complex picture and, and, and really where do you start with Bolsonaro? I mean, the book is called Beef Bible and Bullets, Brazilian, the age of Bolsonaro. Beef Bible and Bullets, is the English translation of the name of the lobbies in Congress that support Bolsonaro. But it, I've used it in the book in a, in a broader sense, a more metaphorical sense, to give you an idea and give readers an idea as to the social uh, basis of Bolsonaro's hardline support. I mean, just to, to run through that very, very quickly, um, beef is the agro-lobby. Um, it's complex, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. 
Bible is the socially conservative evangelical lobby. And the thing to remember there is that in 1980, 6% of Brazilians were evangelical Protestants, mainly neo-Pentecostals, Brazil's homegrown um, religion, really. Now there are over 30% of Brazilians are members of those very socially conservative churches. And the bullets lobby is really people um, who are in favor of um, a hardline approach to crime and particularly to organized crime in poor areas of Brazil and the favelas. These people include the, a very large number of military policemen, that's Brazil's main police force, the military policemen who are at the grassroots at least, and to some extent in the senior ranks, big supporters of the president. And their numbers extend to include, um, in certain states, in particular in Rio, unorganized militias, um, which are you know, illegal essentially. Now, let's go back to the ag lobby, which is obviously in the news at the moment, given you know, climate change and so on. I mean, it is fair to say that bigger agribusiness groups have become a little bit more uh, sensible about the environment. They realize that their export markets, whether they are in China for big, big, big market for the soil, or whether it's elsewhere, are more and more uh, insisting that they adopt green standards. So you will find bigger agro groups being in favor of environmental controls and being sharply critical of this government's approach. However, um, smaller and medium-sized agribusiness, and particularly in fringy areas of the Amazon, are very fervent supporters of Bolsonaro. And their biggest concern in life is having their ability to make money restricted by the activities of environmental agencies or by the, the federal police, by, by anyone else who's going to restrict them. And Bolsonaro has been a huge backer of their interests. Now, um, Bolsonaro, with this alliance, which probably at its maximum accounts for about a quarter of Brazil's population, would not have won the, two, the 2018 election. The reason he won it is that a lot of people have become very disillusioned with the PT. The PT is the left-wing workers' party that under Lula da Silva, President Lula da Silva from 2003 to 2010, legendary former trade unionist, very charismatic guy, uh, two mandates, very successful. And then his successor, Dilma Rousseff, until 2016 when she was impeached, the PT presided over quite a successful few years in the 2000s, but they ended up making a bit of a mess of it. And um, Brazil entered into a recession in 2014-15, which was in part a result of mismanagement by the PT. It also coincided with a huge uh, corruption scandal that discredited both the PT and much of the rest of Brazil's political class. Now, two things then, you've got a vacuum, a political vacuum created by the, 
the discrediting of these major major political parties that had, had had really you know superintended the developments of Brazilian democracy since 1985 when the military left office. And then you got the fact that there was a lot of grassroots unease and opposition to the PT. And a lot of those people saw Bolsonaro as the best way to keep the PT's candidate. By that stage, Lula was in prison, couldn't take part. Her dad, uh, Fernando Haddad was their candidate and they saw Bolsonaro as the best bet. So bringing it forward to 2018, that's how Bolsonaro came to office, a big alliance of of these right-wing lobby groups, radical right-wingers, and more moderate conservatives, liberal conservatives, many of whom had also supported the anti-corruption campaign. Now, the story of the government since 2019, when Bolsonaro takes over as president, has been one of, you know, pretty much this, this broader lines breaking up and beginning to fray in all sorts of ways. And that's where we are right now, with Bolsonaro now looking um, for, for, at, at popularity levels of, you know, certainly under 30%, more around 25% and huge rejection rates. Uh, and we can go on and talk about that. Um, you know, he's got rejection rates of over 60%, according to the recent polls that came out earlier this week. Um, you know, Bolsonaro's, I, I would say, there are many, many issues that Bolsonaro is struggling with at the moment. One is the corruption allegations that have dogged him and his family, his family members, his three most active political sons, Eduardo, uh, Flavio and Carlos, are all very close promoters of the most radical authoritarianism. Um, uh, and uh, they've all been dogged by uh, allegations of various kinds and police investigations, judicial investigations. But I think Politically, the big issue has been the government's appalling management, really, of, of COVID. Um, Bolsonaro, in a nutshell, is a denialist. He has been opposed to all the WHO recipe of measures, whether it's social isolation, masks, alcohol, or whatever else. He's in favor of these sort of slightly bonkers uh, early remedies like chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, uh, Invermectin. He was mentioning that at the General Assembly. He was basically saying it's up to the medical practitioners. Um, I presume that means if they want to give you cattle deworming medicine, you take it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he's taking a leaf out of Donald Trump's book because obviously Trump, you know, also was the great, I mean, they met at Mara Lago in, in March 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think that's one of the things they talked about, and Trump at the time was a great fan of having no isolation and carry on with these medicines and so on, uh, these, these the, the, they're called early remedies, as I say, in Brazil, and Bolsonaro got very, you know, got, got religion over it, and uh, he and his supporters are still convinced that they're the right things to do, despite the fact that uh, most of the medical, all the medical evidence really suggests they do more more harm than good. Bolsonaro actually suffered from COVID himself and recovered, didn't he? He did. I mean, you know, and, and I guess, you know, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? You know, 97% of people who get COVID recover. Uh, but, you know, but, you know, you look at it in the round and Brazil's had nearly 600,000 deaths. It's looking at a death rate per 100,000 of, I think... 2,800. It's one of the worst countries in the world in terms of the death toll. I mean, there are some countries that are worth. Peru is a notable example, but 
in Europe, a lot of the Eastern Europe, the former Yugoslav republics uh, have had terrible records, but they're small in the populations. As a big population, 230 million people in Brazil, it's had a huge impact. And I think that this has been the factor, perhaps more than anything else, that has driven private sector concerns. So, you know, the private sector backed Bolsonaro in 2018. It is very uneasy about Bolsonaro at this point in time. Uh, well, he, he, he was extolling his own government for its record in privatizations. And I'm assuming if the usual pattern is followed, this was looting state assets and selling them to his friends. Is that a fair characterization or has it yes, been I mean, more honest? It is a fair characterization. I mean, you know, the, 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 the liberal theory of privatization is that you know you sell these companies to institutional investors and that they're run by efficient managers and so on. What's yeah. happened in Brazil is that these uh, privatizations, and I'll explain why in a minute, are being sold. They're, they're half half privatizations. They're they're privatizations in name only. They're not being properly sold off to the private. I mean, arguably that's often been the case in Latin America. Let's be honest about it, but. Um, what's happened, in fact, and this is quite an important part of the political equation in Brazil at the moment, is that since the middle of last year, one of the reasons that one of the ways that Bolsonaro's um, survived the loss of his traditional and liberal conservative allies has been his uh, he's cozied up to a group of parties who are known collectively in Portuguese as the Central, the big center. Uh, and these are a group of parties whose main goal in life is not to implement certain kinds of policy agenda. It's not a, they're not ideological parties, they're, they are um, uh, physiological parties. They're there to pursue material interests, material gains, positions in government, positions in government agencies, Government, uh, state budgets, congressional budgets—they're there for—they're there for the—they're there for the rewards, the material rewards. Sounds like American parties until recently. <laughs> exactly, completely like it is complete. You know, it's a model that you know, borrows very heavily from you know municipal politics in the states. I mean, of the twentieth century. And you vote for me, I pay you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's kind of—it's—it it is the the system is the weird thing is that these were the guys who were. Absolutely hammered by the Lava Jato scandal, along with the PT and, and some of the other mainstream parties, and they've 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 struck it all off, and they're they're back. They're back with Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro came to office in 2018, promising a whole new, you know, turning a new page. We're not going to have any of that sort of um, give or take kind of politics that we had uh, before. We're going to do proper accountable politics, and he, of course he's. He survived by making alliance not just with that kind of politics, but with the people who are the worst practitioners of it. It's quite remarkable. And these guys are running the privatization campaigns. Well, it sounds, I mean, it's it sounds oddly reminiscent of Chile at one point. Uh, and you know, that one ended in disaster. They privatized the pension funds, which meant that nobody had a pension. Uh, for example, but, but yeah. between pushing the model on the rest of the world. Uh, but th what's missing here? You mentioned the bullets. Is the Brazilian military a factor in this at all? Uh, you know, it, it, it has a, a, I wouldn't say dis an, an undistinguished record, but a distinctive record 
in the past of uh, military involvement in Brazilian politics. Is that uh, dead and gone, or is it possibly to be revived if he looks like he's going to lose? Well, um, yeah, it's, it's again a complex picture, but I mean, the military was in power between 64 and 1985. Um, and I don't think there's an appetite for revisiting that experience amongst the high command of the military or amongst active, uh, amongst commanders who have control of troops um, at this point. But there are Bolsonarista supporters um, in the military and there are Bolsonarista supporters, particularly amongst the military police, which is um, theoretically at least subject to state control, not federal control, but they do have control of weapons. So they can be, and there are a lot of them. There are over 500,000 military police and there are a lot of retired military policemen in certain states, as I've suggested, they are uh, in, they are, uh, they form paramilitary organizations. They're involved in organized crime themselves. So it's a very murky picture, the military police. Um, and, you know, they clearly, now, are they in support of some sort of military adventure? Um, it, you know, there is, there's a lot of suggestions that they are. Um, the 7th of September, Bolsonaro mobilized all his beef, Bible and bullet supporters uh, in several, in 16 cities in Brazil, they attracted, um, he promised he'd bring 2 million people out onto the streets in Sao Paulo, where the biggest demonstrations took place. It was a lot smaller than that. And there have been fears that his supporters would attack the headquarters of the Supreme Court that for various reasons is a particular bugbear for Bolsonaro. And that would, and that there'd be an attack on the institutions of democracy. That didn't how, did, how did he fail to pack it? The Republicans packed the Supreme Court in the US. Yeah. How come he failed in Brasilia? Well, he's, he has, he is making efforts to pack the court. And, um, but it's, 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 it's not an easy process because they, the, 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 you know, the various, um, the, the various uh, end of terms have not coincided. I think he's, there's been a couple of judges, senior judges replaced, but um, they're all on fairly long tenures. Um, the point is that um, uh, it, it, it didn't succeed. And, you know, people had feared that there would be, you know, the Bolsonaro was attacking these guys. He's saying, you know, time's up for you guys, you know. Uh, they, they've threatened to end the Supreme, he sent, threatened to send troops into the Supreme Court. He's not been able to put those threats into effect. It's been at the level of rhetoric. You know, on, on the Tuesday of the 7th of September, it didn't happen. Two days later, he was apologizing to one of his great enemies in the Supreme Court and setting, saying that he talked in, you know, the heat of the moment, which is a bit ludicrous, frankly, but he's, you know, the problem he faces is that, um, you know, Brazilian institutions are proving to be more resilient than uh, they are in many other Latin American countries. I mean, you know, I was talking with a friend just half an hour ago about the comparison that some people are making now between Brazil and Venezuela, where, you know, the military in Venezuela have supported uh, Nicolas Maduro's authoritarian um, adventures. Uh, would the same happen in uh, Brazil? And, and, and we thought not, actually. I mean, the, the military have a stake in this government, sure. 
there are more people, I think, employed in this government from the armed forces than were employed in the military government itself in the 80s, right? So there are a lot of military guys in the government. They do have a certain amount riding on that. But this is not, uh, there aren't the same sort of material rewards open to them. They're much more integrated with the rest of the world uh, than their Venezuelan counterparts. So I, I don't, I think on balance, I don't think it's going to happen. I might be wrong. Uh, but I, and I think there are authoritarian dangers. In, I think they're more localized perhaps in Brazil. I think there's a, there's a danger, there are dangers in certain states of an intervention by the army or by the military police uh, that would breach con the constitution. There's dangers of authoritarianism, the paramilitary activity, uh, the kind of thing that's happened, that's been happening in Rio de Janeiro that I describe in the book, uh, you know, could happen in other states. Um, but I don't see as going back... That's the police going into the favelas and shooting them up? Well, it's that, but also it's the police off-duty and off-duty police, off-duty firemen are also in Brazil, part of the on foot, they're part of the military police, um, forming, you know, bands of their own. And, you know, if they're not allowed by, you know, by the military to shoot folk, they'll do it on a freelance basis and run extortion rackets and get involved in the drug trade, which is what they're doing in, you know, many favelas in Rio at the moment. So in Rio right now, you have organized gangs, uh, which are in, in, in Rio, the biggest one is the, the Red Command. There are a couple of others, but which are a, a more traditional organized crime gangs. And then you've got, you know, the paramilitary gangs from the right. Uh, very much along, kind of formed along Colombian lines, you know, the paramilitaries in Colombia, the huge problem, you know, there uh, during the civil war there. Um, and that's, that's, that's quite a problem. You know, how do you control those guys? And that's, that's very specific to Rio. It happens a bit in some other states in, in Pará, in the Amazon, they have similar phenomena to some extent, but it's not a university, it's not across the country, it's not, but it could become much more extensive. Well, that, from the sound of it, it sounds like that's one of the defences for Brazil against um, military usurpation is the size of it. Is that, uh, you know, you coordinating across the cities, you know, from Sao Paulo, Rio, all the, all the other cities, uh, such a vast territory, coordinating that type, you know, it would take more than a, a march on a march on, this, on, the, on the, the Capitol Hill on January the 6th to turn things over. I think that's absolutely right, Ian. I mean, it's it's the scale. I mean, it's it's the scale of the country, uh, but it, it's the federal system and the, the the relative powers of the state governors and of city mayors, um, and which which mean that Bolsonaro's executive powers are to some extent simply circumscribed constitutionally. Um, so you know, when Bolsonaro, for example, wanted to stop uh, lockdowns in Brazil last year, you know. The Supreme Court said that, that he was opposed by governors and by mayors who introduced their own lockdowns. And the Supreme Court said he, those guys could do that. Uh, and, you know, they continue to do it. Uh, and again, you get very different outcomes in different states in terms of those death rates. So, you know, some states that are quite sensible anti-COVID policies have got very low death rates. And other states, which have had, which have more Bolsonarista, are generally really bad levels of death rates. So you know, there are there are on that issue and on 
you know, on, on fighting crime and all sorts of issues, there are big differences between the states. There are still four states in the northeast of Brazil that are run by the Workers' Party, the PT, uh, by governors who are, you know, very different in many ways to the, 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 the PT from the, the 2000s, but they are left of centre governors. So how does this go with, um, with, with uh, Lula? Is he going to get real? Will he be? He's a candidate in the next election, isn't he? Yeah, he is. I mean, so Lula's story is that, you know, he wasn't, I mean, I think the story is he was, he was sentenced to prison in 2017, went to prison in 18 um, on a kind of slightly ludicrous corruption charge involving the acquisition of an apartment in a, a slightly scruffy seaside resort in Sao Paulo state. And, and, and bizarrely, his then wife, who subsequently died, had, had actually already had a mortgage on this property for several years. And the mortgage company went into liquidation. There was a, all sorts of confusion about it. It wasn't, frankly, a very strong case to take the president, send the president to prison on. And, you know, at the time, many people were saying this is, there were other cases, right, where, where Lula had been accused of corruption. But this was a particularly weak case. And, you know, many people suggested, including senior legal guys at the time, that really the Labajato task force based down in the southern state of Curitiba was, was ex involved in, a, in, a, in, a, in an exercise of, you know, quite dramatic overreach in, in pursuing it. But they did imprison him. Uh, that judgment was initially supported by, on appeal, and so Bols, um, Lula's disbanded a year in prison. But then the whole thing is unraveled, uh, like much of the rest of Lava Jato, over the past 18 months. And in March this year, Lula was basically absolved, acquitted on all those charges. There are some other outstanding charges, but he, he's basically free to pursue his political ambitions. I mean, Lula is not a young man. He's uh, in his mid seventies now. I think I'm, I'm just, I think he's 75, but anyway, he's, he's pretty energetic to be quite honest. And, and, you know, he's keen to, and has a, and, and would love to, I sure would love nothing more than to be back in the presidency. Um, at the moment, he's leading in the opinion polls by a margin. So opinion polls... Look at Biden, Septuagarians of the world unite. You have nothing to gain. Absolutely. But... <laughs> yeah. yeah, the average age of Brazil as a newspaper columnist <laughs> out this morning is 33. And uh, that's the average age in Brazil. Uh, and, you know, both, uh, you know, here we have these, um, these old guys, Lula and Bolsonaro, uh, you know, the only candidates that have got a serious chance at the moment of winning the election next year. But he's, he's 16 points ahead, Ian, in the polls. So, you know, it, it, at this point, and the, the third a centrist candidate, um, of which there are about half a dozen potential uh, runners um, are really not polling in double figures yet. It's early days. It could change. But, um, you know, at, at this point, we don't have anyone who's really emerging. I mean, both, I suppose several things could happen. I mean, Bolsonaro's popularity could decline to such an extent that he might be in, you know, the low double digits by this time next year. And if he is, then there's a serious chance he might not make the second round. And there's an alternative 
more sensible conservative would have a chance. And there are several candidates for that role. Or alternatively, Lula might implode, but I think that's less likely, quite honestly. Um, Lula's got high rejection rates. I mean, not as high as Bolsonaro's. Poll this week suggested it was around about 38% rejection rate for Lula. So that means that people who would not, under any circumstances, vote for, for Lula, uh, 40, nearly 40% of the population, you know, but then again, 60% under no circumstances at all will vote for Bolsonaro. So um, it is quite polarized in that sense. There's a lot of people in Brazil want a third candidate, but as I say, the field is very populated, it's very over full. And, um, you know, we, we haven't seen anyone emerge yet. And uh, what about the Brazilian media? Uh, how strong is it? And is, uh, who, who is Brazil's Rupert Murdoch? What? <laughs> That's an interesting question, right? I mean, uh, there's several elements to that. I mean, I think Brazil's newspapers um, are far better, uh, technically speaking, than uh, newspapers in any other Latin American country, I would say. Um, you know, newspapers like Oes Tadal from uh, Folha, from Sao Paulo, Globo, and uh, from from Rio, uh, 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 some of the best newspapers in the in 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 South America. Uh, I think they're much better than Mexican newspapers, in my in my opinion. Uh, from a technical point of view, politically, um, they are pretty much anti-Bolsonarista. Uh, they they don't like Bolsonaro. He gets a terrible. I mean, Estadão is the Estado de São Paulo is a kind of conservative newspaper. But it's very, its editorials have been consistently anti-Bolsonaro. Now, then there's the question of TV. Uh, and um, you have Global, uh, which is, is the biggest terrestrial channel. And then there are several other players. Hekorji, which is uh, owned by one of the Pentecostal churches, the Nair Pentecostal churches, the Universal Church of God, is a very big player indeed and is, has been quite close to the government. Um, so, so Bolsonaro does have a bit of support there. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the fact that, you know, for many Brazilians, they don't really, they don't read newspapers. Um, uh, they do, you know, they do watch TV. But I think one of the things that's happened in the last 15 years has been the rise of, uh, you know, a virtual media. Brazilians are very, very big users of uh, social media whether it, we're talking about, you know, this is really, you know, quite notable, I think. I mean, very early users of, um, I mean, I, I, my, my Brazilian friends were much more likely to use uh, things like Facebook uh, and WhatsApp well before uh, UK or American friends would. Uh, I think that is quite interesting. This, uh, they, they're really early adapters to it. First time I ever saw an iPad was in Brazil. I mean, the, it, it's, it's extraordinary, and, and given how difficult it is, how expensive it is to buy this equipment in Brazil because of the, the tax system, it's quite remarkable that they're so, so enthusiastic. But um, you do have a lot of younger Brazilians, big, big users in particular, younger Brazilians. So, you know, the, 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 and, and, and of course, Bolsonaro has exploited that because there's been, and, and, and that brings us on to the issue of fake news, um, which is a big thing in Brazil. And they've been very adept, very, very clever at, at using uh, fake news. Um, uh, Bolsonaro's second son, uh, Carlos, 
uh, organizes uh, his um, his social media, and uh, they are he he runs a little group which. Um, is described as the Gabinetti di Odio, the hate cabinet, uh, which uh, goes around <laughs> spreading poison against all Bolsonaro's enemies. That includes many people, actually, both on, on, from all ends of the political spectrum. Uh, Bolsonaro loathes and detests lots of people, and you know, quite remarkable claims are being made on on, and that's brought him into um, conflict with the judiciary that are investigating several of these fake news operations. Oh, there's, there's no sort of central, there's, there's no titanic anti-figure, uh, like the uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch or equivalent of... No, there's no Fox News in Brazil, really. Uh, so there's not, in that sense, it's quite distinct, really. I mean, um, if anything, the media is anti-Bolsonaro, I would say. I mean, the private, and I think that's become more pronounced because the private sector... You know, the big banks, the big, um, you know, big agribusiness, the big banks, the big, uh, big listed companies are, are pretty are taken against Bolsonaro. I mean, they don't see him as they don't see him as being sustainable for their interests. Mm -hmm. um, let, let, let's go back to Lula. I mean, he he was an intriguing figure because he was sort of uh, he, he, he was left workerist, you know, generally almost expected a military coup when he was elected. But he pulled off quite a stunt in terms of um, uh, mixing pragmatism and serious reforms, and yet keeping the um, you know the whatever the whatever the Brazilian equivalent of Wall Street is happy, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think the clue, the key to Lula's success of Lula, particularly Lula's first term. I mean. Wind this story back, you know, I mean, the biggest problem that Brazil faced in the 1980s and early 90s, I'm going back before Lula now, was hyperinflation. Brazil was notoriously um, unstable from a macroeconomic point of view. The man who sorted that out was Fernando Henrique Cardoso, who's Lula's predecessor. And Cardoso introduced something called the Real Plan in 1994. And you know, it was a liberal economic plan, a more moderate one than those introduced by Argentina and Mexico. But it gradually began to restore order, particularly from the very late 90s, to Brazil's government accounts. Greater transparency, great stability. When Lula came into office in 2002, he made a commitment to maintain inflation at very low levels. And the reason he did that was that he was convinced that his supporters, his poorer supporters, were the ones who were most adversely affected by high inflation rates. <coughs> living entirely in the cash economy that mm. suffered most. They didn't have other assets. They just relied on cash. And the cash in their pockets was losing its value, you know, overnight. And he was quite convinced that it was important to maintain macroeconomic stability. He, he was lucky in a way, too, because the early 2000s coincided with the rise of China on international markets. And that brought some enormous benefits for Brazil, because Brazil's exports of soya, of iron ore, uh, and later in the decade of oil uh, to China went up, you know, at a rate of knots. And 
you know, from a position of facing external deficits in the 80s and early 90s, by 2010, Brazil was sitting on a very comfortable cushion of foreign reserves. It was paying back the money that it borrowed to, to the, from the IMF. It was paying money back to the IMF. It was, it was stable. It had relatively low inflation rates. It had relatively stable macroeconomic management. And what Lula did with that was to extend credit to poorer people. So we saw um, various systems of payday loans introduced in Brazil in, from around 2004 onwards. We saw quite extensive social programs. We saw a lot of public sector and a lot of private sector formal employment. And so what this did was to create great, very high levels of consumption amongst working class people. In many ways, what happened in Brazil in the 2000s was a bit like what happened, Ian, when we were you know, sort of growing up in Britain in the 1950s and 60s, when the higher purchase was a thing. You know, people started buying televisions and fridges and you, know, you began to see little cars in the street and so on and so forth. And that, was, that happened in Brazil really in the 2000s. People were buying, people in favelas were acquiring on credit, you know, flat screen TVs and sound systems. People were buying cars on seven year loans. Um, you know, it was, people were flying for the first time. People were, you know, working class people were doing plastic surgery about, you know, Brazil's a hugely enthusiastic um, uh, people for pl plastic surgery. Uh, they were buying expensive cosmetics and creams and God knows what. You know, it was kind of, it, it, it was suddenly, they were, they were starting to buy better food in supermarkets rather than, you know, in street markets. They're buying things like yogurt and, you know, green vegetables for, uh, it, it, and stuff like that. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of, it was fantastic for people. They were- and In a way, it almost seems like a precursor all across northern, all across the northern hemisphere, governments discovered that if you give people money, they spend it and it promotes the economy. They, but they, we had to wait for COVID here to get this realization. Yeah, well, Lula anticipated it. <laughs> well, I think yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, and and of course, you know, the thing is that the trick for the PT was to, you know, what what Dilma did was Dilma Rousseff who took over from Lula and and, and took office beginning of two thousand eleven. You know, she wanted to keep that going, and to a certain extent, she did. But it started to go wrong because they started, they started messing around with the base of the, of, of the of, of, with the macroeconomic management. They started fiddling around with it, and uh, the private sector really lost confidence in her. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the 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 China, there was the first fall in commodity prices, so we had an end to the commodity boom, Brazil was doing less well, and it all resulted in this slowdown in 2014-16. Um, and a lot of disillusion, a lot of disappointment. I think, you know, people, it happened across the region and to, to, to a certain extent, most, you know, Venezuela saw a huge decline in the 2000, from 2010, 12 onwards, as a result of falling oil prices. Um, you know, we saw it elsewhere too, but, it really, I think the problem in Brazil is that this economic slowdown coincided with the, you know, the political implosion of, of the, the Lava Jato scandal. It, it coincided also with another, some other unfortunate circumstances, the riot, a, a big 
gang war between Brazil's biggest organized crime gangs, the Red Command in Rio, I've mentioned earlier. And, and the, the, the Red Command doesn't have political connotations, does it? Well, they do, actually. And I mean, uh, strangely enough, I mean, um, you know, the, the, the first command of the capital and the Red Command, when they were formed in the early, well, the Red Command was formed in the early 70s. And a lot of the prisoners were in contact with members of, imprisoned members of Brazil's, you know, urban guerrilla movement. Uh, and they took as their manual for running organized crime, um, you know, uh, books that have been written by, by guerrilla commanders in Brazil. I mean, this is a, you know, Brazil's guerrilla left was always a fairly minoritarian thing. Uh, it, it was never anything that had mass support. But it, it, it was, a, you know, like elsewhere in Latin America, we did have armed insurrectionary outfits. And they did influence some of the organizational principles of both the Red Command and the First Command of the Capital. Although, of course, you know, the, the, I mean, they are, they, I mean, the PCC, the First Command of the Capital, calls itself the party of crime. You know, it's not. The it's party of crime. Yeah. I, I thought there were Republicans, Conservatives, there were lots yeah. of people <laughs> vying for the position. I'd have thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there is a kind of there is a there is a there is a, a slightly tenuous connection, but the, there is nonetheless a, a connection. Um, but these two groups, and we're talking about big organisations, you know, many thousands of people with you know large weaponry and so on. They basically beat the shit out of each other for for two years in. 2000, from around 2015-16, and they, you know, a lot of people were killed. Um, and Is this on ideological grounds or was it just a turf war? It's about control of territory and control of drugs routes. I mean, basically, in the mid-2000s, a new and important drugs route through the Amazon grew up, and the PCC started to want to control the whole of the territory, and so it attacked. And there are various, they're various, they're all, it's a very... It's an incredibly complex picture. There are many groups involved, and they were basically allied. You know, each the PCC and the Red Command have got their own groups in different states. And you know, and I, I went to um, Serra, which saw some of the Serras in the northeast of Brazil, and their death rates were going through the roof from you know around 2014, mainly as a result of this war between the two the two main gangs uh, for territory. And you know some of those routes through the Amazon eventually go out onto the the Atlantic coast, and that that's why they go to Sarah. Uh, and you know from there the drugs are both sent down south through the internal market in Brazil, but also exported to Europe and and uh, and to the east, which you know the, the growing growing markets for illegal drugs. Mm. Uh, where is Brazil? Uh... I mean, Brazil was one of the founding members of the BRICS, the idea of setting up a, a, a counterweight to US hegemony. Uh, but obviously, um, under Bolsonaro, that, that particular beat, the BRICS seemed to have gone by the wayside. Is this still a, an ongoing project, or has, has, Brazil, has Brazil given up its BRICS it's hood? It's one of the curiosities, really, of the last, you know, sort of these you know, sort of energy markets that the BRICS has its own institutions. It has a bank, um, which I think, I forget where it's, but I think it's based in 
somewhere in India, I forget where, but um, it, it still works, it still functions and they have meetings and so on and so forth. Um, is it meaningful? It's kind of meaningful, but not in a, not as BRICS. I mean, the, the thing that's meaningful is the trade relationship between China and Brazil. Um, I mean, China over the past 20 years has become, you know, Brazil's biggest trading partner um, by quite a long way. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, Brazil is, heavily dependent in, 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 on its exports to, to China. Um, that's also true about many of its neighbors. So, you know, for, for, for Chile and Peru, which are big producers of copper, China's a huge market. It's, um, you know, the Chinese have big stakes in Argentina, big stake in uh, places like Ecuador, um, Venezuela. So it's not just a Brazilian thing, but the Brazil relationship is very significant. Bolsonaro came to office as a great critic of that relationship. His first foreign minister, uh, Michael Nelson Araujo, was massively critical about China, accusing it of being Maoist and so on, and not being paying attention for the last 30 years. <laughs> Things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, they, it was, and I think Bolsonaro was surprised to find that it was quite capitalist when he went there. But, and, and, you know, Bolsonaro has indeed hosted visits from Chinese leaders and, and has been trying to keep the relationship sweet. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, it is a pretty important relationship. And the Chinese, I suspect, will see out this political turbulence. Um, you know, he, he'd been very critical of the Chinese during his campaign, um, but, you know, and, and, and very much hoping to, um, you know, develop relations with, um, well, particularly with Donald Trump, obviously he was his, his idol in Bolsonaro's own words, um, but also with countries like Japan and South Korea and, you know, they were trying to push. Well, interestingly, Trump was very careful not to raise the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and Biden did today. So it's a, yeah. that, that's a tug of loyalties for Bolsonaro, isn't it? Or, it is. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, so you do have the situation now that, you know, a right wing regime is closer to... I don't know whether you call whether you call China a nominally a left wing regime. Hardly, really, but that's a right wing regime, honestly. <laughs> but you have this kind. Of, you know, you remember you had that situation in the seventies when the military dictatorship in Argentina. You know, its main trading ally was the Soviet Union. Right, that's where they used to export wheat to. I mean, it's kind of bizarre. So it's kind of one of those kind of curious things. Um, Bolsonaro is and China. Uh, it's there is a kind of relationship of convenience, certainly. As a veteran of the solidarity movements in that time, I always thought it was very interesting that the sort of communist parties and their supporters were very big on solidarity with Chile, but tended to be quiet about Argentina. And I drew the connection myself at the time that there was a, there was a of state involved. Yes, I, 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 I well remember that as a, as a, as a similar solidarity activist <laughs> giving out some, Leaflets entitled "Football, Yes, uh, Torture, No" in the ninety just before the nineteen seventy eight World Cup, um, <laughs> and you know th th there were very few members of the Communist Party support that supported this. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll put we'll put another red feather in our caps and carry on, um, but uh, we we don't have that much time now. Which way is Brazil going to go? Is I mean it's been heralded as the next superpower for years. Uh, I don't know whether you know, there was a science fiction series uh, by um, The Outward Urge by a 
famous science fiction writer, John Wyndham, I believe it was, oh, really? in which he considered Brazil to be the superpower of the future. Brazil got into space first uh, oh. and, and, and was, uh, was, was out there because of its natural strength. It's, I mean, it's unitary pretty much in language. It's got discrete territory. Until recently, it was fairly unitary in religion as well huge economic wealth and, you know, a fair degree of sophistication uh, in many ways. So I suppose the question is, is it going to be a superpower? And if not, why not? I think that's quite a, it's quite a difficult question to answer. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I, I think in the, in, I mean, you know, essentially, Brazil does have extraordinary resources. Um, I mean, its, it's water resources are less abundant than they once were because of patterns in global warming and, and, and particularly deforestation has, has reduced the amount of rainfall. And I think there's a report out last month that suggested that surface water in Brazil has declined by 16% since the 1980s. But it, but it does have um, a lot of water and that's one of the reasons why it's agriculture is, is so productive. It has enormous amounts of land. Um, that's and why they way, call them rainforests, I suppose. Well, it is, but I think that there's, you know, a lot of the expansion in, you know, Brazil was quite successful in controlling deforestation under Lula, in fact. It's one of his less heralded successes. But between 2004 and 2012, uh, in part because of the influence of Marina Silva, his, his environmentalist, uh, envir environment minister, they did cut deforestation quite a bit. And, you know, it was, it was definitely doing extremely well. During that same period, agricultural production went up and, and it wasn't because they were growing soya in the rainforest, it was because they were expanding um, land, you know, under conservation elsewhere. And uh, some of that's quite controversial. It takes place in the sort of semi-arid arid areas, uh, close to but some of it's not, quite frankly. And, you know, I think Brazil's farming sector is quite productive um, and it, it will do better if it develops its green credentials, um, as some people in the farming sector want to do. And that's not an apology for the, you know, for, for, for it's not greenwashing. I don't think it amounts to greenwashing. So I think there is, there is potentially more to come on agriculture. Um, Brazil's a big food product producer. It's got big minerals, it's got big energy resources and not just oil, it's got big green energy resources. Um, obviously hydro is controversial in the sense of the, you know, the way dams are developed, but those that are already there, 70% uh, of Brazil's energy needs are hydro, which is very high uh, by international standards. And then it's got you know, it's ethanol production, which is, you know, unlike in the States, which comes from maize, I mean, ethanol in Brazil is produced from sugarcane, and it's, it's, it's more productive than maize-based ethanol. And Brazil's been quite clever about the way it uses ethanol in its, in its um, petrol ethanol mix. Many Brazilian cars are already converted to that mix. So, you know, there are some sort of positive signs in energy. Um, but, you know, the question is, I think the question is political leadership and institutions. I mean, institutions, I, I suspect, are more resilient than many fear. 
polarization, social polarization is is has been very acute, and you know, as, as, as you know, Bolsonaro demonstrates. Um, there is a kind of new generation of leaders coming through. Um, I was just talking to someone earlier on today about, you know, the Amazonian governors who are trying to develop sustainable approaches to economic development in the Amazon. Uh, and these are progressive figures and they're younger politicians. They want to do things differently. Um, they're fully aware of, you know, the need to reestablish uh, a sensible system of uh, environmental controls and, and, and stopping illegal mining, illegal forestry. Um, you know, they, 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 that, that has to be done. So I think that there's, there's quite a bit happening in that area. Um, I think it, it may not happen. I mean, next year, we might have quite a chaotic election. Lula could be back. What, how that's going to work out, very difficult to predict. Um, but, you know, I think there's, there, are, there is some hope on the horizon, I think. Um, and, and Brazil does have this very impressive, and its resource base is, you know, is, is still going to be important. There's an awful lot of coffee, as I remember. <laughs> an awful lot of coffee. And coffee and cachaça. And cachaça. Uh, the historian of Rome. It's not sufficiently widely drunk. I mean, you know, it's still, you know, Brazil said nothing like the, you know, tequila has become a kind of world drink, whereas cachaça has still to, you know, they've still not taken advantage of the potential of the caipirinha. Well, they, they spent a long time establishing that... Uh, the cachaça wasn't rum, even though it is by definition. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. saying it has to or have a different, a different sort of rum, basically. Yeah. Yes. So, um, as the official historian of rum, um, <laughs> I feel the need to call attention to it. But sure, yeah. uh, we're coming towards the end now. I think it's a uh, it, Brazil. Should, would you, if you're an investor, would you put money in it? There are some. Com I think. One of the things that's different about Brazil, I mean, I do quite, I, I've been doing quite a lot of work on Bolivia for various reasons of late. And, you know, you know, you look at places like Bolivia and, and some of the other places in Latin America, and they really don't have an awful lot to invest in. I think, you know, Brazil is a huge country. It does have a very big variety of sophisticated companies. Um, and some of them are, very, frankly, very good. Um, you know, Brazil has some really interesting uh, financial... No, it makes commercial jet aircraft, which Britain does no longer well, it, do anymore. It, it so, absolutely. The Embraer, uh, which is caused many problems as a result of the pandemic and so on, lost orders and so on. But nonetheless, you know, Embraer is a good example. Um, and there are many cases, there are a lot in the financial services, particularly new tech businesses. There's quite a lot going on in Brazil that's quite interesting, even by international standards. Um, and then, you know, a lot of, you know, very good retail businesses. Um, uh, so there are some sectors that are quite interesting. So I can see why investors, I, I'm not a particularly active investor, so it's not something that I would you know, get involved in, I just leave it to someone else. But it, 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 it's, I think that, you know, I can see why investors will look at Brazil um, with a long-term view um, without, you know, saying that, you know, without trying to under, uh, underplay current levels of 
political risk, which I think are quite considerable, actually. Well, okay, I think that's all we've got time for, Richard. This is um, Ian Williams with the Foreign Press Association in New York, and we've had the rare privilege of uh, Richard Lapper, whose very well-reviewed book, I noticed, as an author myself, it's always nice to see people getting good reviews and notices everywhere. Well done, Richard. And uh, uh, rush out and buy it. Uh, beef, Bolsonaro, bullets. Beef, beef, Bible and bullets. Beef, beef, Bible and bullets. It's an alliteration play, obviously. Yes, I, I got the alliteration. I remember I studied English. It's, <laughs> was, uh, it's, it's, um, it's available on... Uh, Amazon, it's uh, on, on Kindle as well, and, and we're hoping we're doing a, a new edition for next year, uh, an update. Um, so yeah, okay, everybody, go out and buy and uh, do <laughs> sign up for our next um, for, for our next briefings this afternoon at uh, six o'clock. We're interviewing the um, foreign minister of Pakistan another pivotal country that's sort of in the news today. So we will be, um, we look forward to seeing you there. Some people, if you get your word in quickly, there'll be a few people allowed in live at the Pakistan mission for it. The rest of us will, you'll be on Zoom along with the rest of us. Uh, but obviously this is yet another sort of uh, press conference whose time has come. Uh, Pakistan is um, in the news, Afghanistan, Central Asia, India, China, it's, it's in the epicenter of, uh, of Asia at the moment. And we look forward to hearing from the Prime Minister Shah Mahmoud, uh, the Foreign Minister. Uh, I don't want to give him ambitious ideas. Shah Mahmoud Qureshi. So that's this evening at six o'clock. Please come along. We have more remember, coming. I, I'm, bound to, I'm bound to add, remember that this is Ian Williams' birthday. So a happy birthday to Ian. And um, I'm sure... The audience will, you know, wish him a happy birthday too. It's also World Peace Day and it's H.G. <laughs> Wells' birthday. I got these things accreted, as well as the opening of the General Assembly. It's a day of deep significance. I think my mother contrived it since I was six weeks premature by cesarean section. So she probably said, September the 21, that's the day we want for him. Well, I think you should, I think you should have a few Kuiperinias tonight to celebrate, Ian. I have every intention of trying later. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks a lot, Richard. Thank you. Okay, thank you everybody.